Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Jen Howe, who is the vice president of university advancement at the University of Dayton. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Brent. It's great to be here. So we were just um, catching up on the fact that last weekend you had your first reunion experience in some time. And so we're going to make sure to dive into that. Um, It sounds like it was uh, energizing and exhausting at the same time. Um, But before we get there, I would love to just learn a little bit more about your personal higher education journey. So take me back to Jen in high school. Who was she (laughs) and what led her to JMU? Yeah, so um, I was a senior in high school um, in Fairfax County, Virginia, and in fact had moved there two weeks into my senior year. Um, So I had a graduating class of almost a thousand kids and I knew about 10. Uh, and my dad's job had taken us up there. And so for me, um, I had come from the Southeast U.S., had probably always thought I would go to a school in the Southeast, and all of a sudden I found myself in a very different setting. And so JMU um, really had a great feel to it. At the time, it's about 11,500 students, so it was more like a private university because we all knew each other. It was a really small size, very residential, um, you know, and it was just far enough from mom and dad to be cool, but also be able to get to them. I mean, like most college students. So that was me then. Um, Haven't changed a lot. I loved books and writing and interacting with people and didn't know exactly how that would turn into a career. I think my dad thought business or law. I went English history uh, route and, uh, you know, graduated there and then went into marketing and sales. uh, With And so... You studied English language and literature, uh, is my understanding. So what is one aspect of English language and or literature that we should all probably better know or be familiar with than we are? Uh, I would say the most valuable thing to me has been um, kind of the critical, if you want to call it the critical theory, when you read something that as an English major, you were asked to apply no matter what genre or time frame uh, of, of literature you were reading, because it really hones your comprehension skills. And so I think one of the things that makes us successful later on is our ability to hear and see things that may not be topics that we're really familiar with, but the fact that we can really slow down and actually look at them ask the right questions, you know, um, be more critical about what we're seeing on the page or on the screen. I, I think that's kind of how it's translated for me. I think the other thing mm-hmm. is I would say to anybody, take a persuasive writing course that has served me better than anything I've ever done uh, is actually, you know, knowing how to write with a sense of passion and persuasion um, that that has served me, whether I've been in the private sector or higher ed. I don't know if it was exactly a persuasive writing class, but I'll never forget this class I took in college. And I wrote this paper and I was the writer that would constantly write, you know, I think dot, 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 or I feel dot, 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 dot. And I remember the first time I got the paperback from that professor, it's just like all crossed out. Like, of course you think and feel this way. It's your paper. Stop writing those. And I've like never forgotten, like to this mm-hmm. day when I write an email and I try not to write, I think, or I feel because it's a given. That's all I got for persuasive writing. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so while at JMU, in spite of that sort of 
unique high school experience of being dropped into a big pond with not much time to get to know um, the other fish. It looks like you were pretty involved from a leadership perspective at JMU. During that period, mm -hmm. did you know what alumni relations and development was? Did you ever get a window into that part of the world through your student leadership? You know, it's funny. I really didn't. And I think at that point in time, JMU was kind of this smaller, somewhat emerging institution. You have this big you know, schools like UVA and uh, Virginia Tech and William & Mary who had these very steeped histories. They had formal alumni associations. Um, they used those networks for placement on internships and uh, career placement and so forth. And Madison wasn't there yet, right? And so there was very little interaction. So I didn't really have a sense of it actually until I graduated. And the reason I say that is because so many graduates of the JMU, JMU University stay in that Washington, D.C. metro area, that that was the point where I realized, oh, wait a second, there's this whole network of people and the university supports that kind of conversation and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that has stuck with me. So now in my current work, one of the biggest things I focus on is the activity that we do with our undergraduate students and our professional students while they're here on campus so that they know we exist long before they leave us, right? You know, before they graduate and go on or what have you. Um, but yeah, I probably didn't figure out really what, what all that was and what it could mean to me till probably 18 to 24 months out, you know, from graduation. And so you said that you went into marketing and sales out of uh, school. Tell me more about those early roles. Yeah, so for like the first six years after graduation, first in the DC area and then in the Raleigh-Durham area, um, I was kind of what they called a new business uh, marketing analyst kind of person or what have you, um, and worked in commercial real estate and then an architecture engineering firm um, in, in North Carolina. And they were great proving grounds in the sense that, you know, you had to learn customer service skills. Again, you had to have high-end communication skills, a lot of follow-through, um, and you had to be able to walk in and kind of like in fundraising and talk to a brick wall, right? You know, walk into a room, not know anybody. And and be able to kind of hold your own. And it was uh, it was a great experience. You get to learn how to hear no and not take it personally, uh, which is also important when you move into, you know, fundraising and so forth. And so it was, it was, it was good. It, it was fast paced. Um, it was very much time is money. And so it was a good orientation to really kind of, you know, prime myself, you know, so that when I made the shift, um, I brought kind of a skill set that was a little different maybe than if I'd come up through higher ed only. What was the catalyst for you to move to Atlanta and uh, join Emory? So um, my husband, actually, he, he changed professions and we moved to Atlanta, which is actually where I was born. So it was kind of like going back home and anything. Um, and I really had reached a point where maybe charging every six minutes to a client's number just didn't feel like what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Right. Anything. And so I, I kind of said to my mom at the time, um, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And this is what I enjoy the most. And this is what I don't enjoy. And her comment to me, because she was working at Georgetown University in DC at the time, um, was, well, why don't you try actually representing something you've always cared about and, and enjoyed? And that's education. Um, it was probably the best advice she ever gave me. She gave me a lot of good advice, but that was probably one of the best pieces. And so I really started looking at positions across the whole Atlanta metro area and got really fortunate to be hired by the provost office at Emory University to be a special projects manager for a brand new provost that they had just promoted. Um, and it was a eagle eye view of how university works 
you know, in, in the shared governance model and all those kind of things um, that you kind of have to know when you're a fundraiser. Um, but maybe if you aren't in the middle of it, you don't learn, right? And, and so it was really great to kind of be a part of that first and then move into fundraising after about a year, year and a half. So you had a window into fundraising by way of the provost's office. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd be curious to know what was like the reputation of fundraising when you're in the provost's office? Um, Was there a tight partnership? Was it sort of there over there? I mean, what what was your initial impression of the intersection of fundraising and the broader um, academic apparatus? Yeah. So I probably have had what I'm going to call atypical experience to my other peers that might be listening. I've been at three different institutions where the academic arm is literally walking hand in glove with the advancement operation. I have plenty of colleagues who talk about the disconnect, right? You know, whether it's because of the way they're structured or just the way the division is led or what have you, um, where you know, advancement is kind of over here doing what they do and they'll let you know when they raise some money and then academics kind of constantly think, well, you're not hearing what I really need. And Hey, I've got a budget gap. I want you to fill, you know, that kind of thing. And they're kind of cross talking each other. I was really fortunate because, you know, Emory is completely centralized or was at least at the time advancement wise. And it was very clear that, you know, we were going to really follow the, academic priorities that the provost along with the deans had set, right? Um, we we're coming out of a campaign, um, really needed to regain momentum, you know, after kind of going through that wave of, of last donors and so forth. And so we needed something that was very concise, very compelling, and in many ways would have an impact across the entire institution versus just discrete parts of it. So that was kind of my first exposure. And, you know, and then when I arrived at Vanderbilt, uh, Gordon D was leading basically a centralization and strategic effort to bring the academic side of the house, the finance side of the house, and then advancement basically into direct parallel with one another. Mm. Um, and this they is- had kind of been operating separately. And, and so it was, you know, I, again, like I say, it's been interesting that three different institutions, but I've had the same experience at all three. So yesterday I had the opportunity to interview uh, Cindy Roth for the podcast, who is the CEO of the West Virginia Foundation, right. whose current president is Gordon, Gordon Gee. Gee. And so I got a good dose of Gordon <laughs> Gee yesterday. When I um, applied to, to Brown University, where mm-hmm. I went to college, he was the president at Brown. So it's been a very uh, interesting yeah. two days of Gordon Gee uh, reconnection, which I might um, press on here in a minute. Sure. Uh, and then I also hosted... Dan Allenby recently on the podcast, mm-hmm. who uh, is a JMU uh, graduate. And yep. uh, and so we were just talking a little JMU. But when you think about that transition at Emory from um, the provost into development, um, and you think about even some of those like first visits or, I don't know, memorable experiences where you had been operating in the more traditional sort of sales driven world, I would argue there are huge parallels to the sector, but there are also some real nuances. And then I bet the folks you were working with from a commercial real estate perspective or from an architecture perspective didn't have some pre-existing brand affinity with your organizations at the time, right? So they were all probably mm-hmm. very cold leads relative to right. the portfolio you might've been assigned at Emory. So just walk me through some of those early moments when you, I don't know, visits that stand out or you started to think, hey, this is this is fun. 
Yeah. So my first job, at, at, at the big job that I had at, at Emory was around foundations and international relations. So I had the great joy of working with other organizations that had very formal structures to them, right? You know, private foundations want you to communicate, engage with them, uh, solicit them in a very specific way. And then so it's more like more like working an account versus yes, yes, the yes, relationship. Right. Yeah. And then on the international front, we were trying to really set up the first round of kind of alumni chapters and direct fundraising and so forth for the school. And so I got the best of both worlds. So, you know, one of my favorite pieces was actually, there's a part of Emory that's called uh, Oxford College. It's its first two years or what have you. And working with one of the private foundations there in the Atlanta area, we were able to secure about, a, I think it was a million to five, you know, for a facility. And that was like my very first, like really big gift. And it was huge because this particular foundation requires you to only submit one page. That's it. It doesn't matter how much money you're asking for. One page, they've got like seven questions they want answered. Um, you're trying to figure out a way to make it super compelling. And, uh, and they even tell you what your margins have to be, right? You can, it's not like you can take it down to 0.25 on the top and the bottom. Or uh, I also use that trick in the class yeah. I was referencing. Yeah. But so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so that was really huge because I was so excited that the supervisor I had at the time um, decided that he was going to give that particular solicitation uh, assignment to me. And it was just, you know, it was kind of one of those things that was like really magic, right? Because I could learn the content. And then to my point earlier, I had to take my persuasive writing skills after meeting with the program officer to understand the expectations of the submission. And like, I've got to figure out how in basically four paragraphs on one page to get you to make a million dollar plus gift, you know, and they had a relationship with the university. So that was helpful. But like you said, I mean, you know, they answer to a set of stakeholders in their own board and everything else. They don't, they're looking for the best idea and the best opportunity that matches their desired objectives, right? Not mm -hmm. yours. And so it, that was a real thrill to kind of like go through that process for the very first time and see that come through. Um, obviously the first time you close like a scholarship gift from somebody abroad to bring someone who wouldn't be here, that's, that's, that's important too, but that was like the first big assignment that I got that went the right way. There were plenty that didn't go as well, but you're going to have those, you know, so. Doesn't it sort of make you wish that you always had to fit it onto one page yes. with seven <laughs> questions? I mean, there's probably something to learn from that. And, you know, even as we think about, you know, we're going through a, we're going through a strategy planning session right now mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, mission, vision, values, five-year plan, three-year target, one-year goals. And the process that we are using literally makes you put it all on one sheet of paper, you know, right. one piece of paper that everybody can reference constantly. And there's no room for fluff uh, when you have those sorts of constraints and probably something that we can all um, all learn from for sure. You, you said that you had plenty that didn't go the right way. I, I think uh, it's been really fun as we've had leaders like you join this podcast who've been willing to share, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the blooper reel, uh, if you will, as well. I, I am curious, you know, when you think about times that you've maybe asked for too much money mm -hmm. or not enough money, or just position things the wrong way, if anything, um, comes to mind as being a lesson learned. You know, I, I think the lessons that um, I've learned 
and I've had a couple of guests and I think that have had this characteristic is where we as a team, the, the, the academic side of the house and the advancement side of the house, we were so focused on getting the solicitation perfect that we lost the moment, the timing was off. And, and so what do I mean? You know, donors do things out of passion and impact, right? And so when you have a conversation with somebody about a really transformative gift um, and they're excited about it, but they really don't know exactly how, what it looks like or how, what it, you know, how you'll execute it or that type of thing. The challenge for us is those are usually big ideas that involve multiple areas of our institution. Okay? And you come back and you've got the content experts, which advancement is not the content expert, right? You know, not if it's nanotechnology, you get my point, you know, or solving schizophrenia. You're not, you're not the content expert. But what you are is the person who's supposed to be able to kind of bring collectively these folks together to have a good conversation, to move this idea forward fast enough that you can capture that person's imagination and their passion in, you know, relatively short order. Because, you know, there's thousands of things competing for their attention as well as their money, right? And there's very few that want to walk through this journey with you slowly once they've found the thing they really want to do. So I've had at least two experiences where really significant, I mean, we're talking, you know, eight-figure type conversation at least, where it took too much time on our side of the conversation to come back to the person that the moment for the donor had passed. Not that they didn't still think it was important, but in the way we had our inability to act fast had given them less confidence that we could really tackle aggressively what they wanted us to try to do. Does that make sense to you? It makes total sense. And I think one of the most um, common, you know, well-known adages in the sales world is time kills all deals. Yep. You know, time kills deals, things change, external factors, market forces, somebody leaves when you've got, and it's a balance because, you know, the other side of that is, overly pushy salespeople, mm -hmm. but it's that balance of when the moment is right, responsiveness really matters because we are competing for time and attention and focus. And especially I think in an environment, in a sector like philanthropy, which, you know, I consider the ultimate discretionary consumer mm -hmm. discretionary purchase. Right. Um, you know, I think it's extra important to, um, to, to move when there's an opportunity. And I think we see that in times of tragedy, right? There's the emotional response and that visceral reaction to, I want to help. And then a month later, three months later, no matter what the tragedy, um, it's just not going to be as emotional. And I think there's probably, it sounds like an equivalent version of that, even in more kind of thoughtful structured major gifts, there's a time to plan and then there's a time to move. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And, you know, it, it, like I said, it's uh, sometimes, you know, we do, we, we, so, we want to get things so perfect, you know, it, that it, it drives us not to be willing to admit that we don't have every answer. And I think that one of the things I'm learning, particularly with what I would call next generation kind of wealth is they don't want us to have all the answers. In fact, they want to be part of that co creative conversation. Right. You know, um, it's not like they want us to come and have the problem completely defined and the solution already dictated. And 
I think that is a different way for higher ed to think. I mean, you know, historically it's been, oh, you want to support this or you want to solve that. You know, we have the expertise to do that, not how can we work together? What is your thought? You know, that kind of thing or what have you. And I'm starting to see more and more kind of that demand to be a part of the the concept or the creative process, but they wanted to move faster. So I'll go back to that first job I was telling you about at Emory, the provost that I worked for there, her name was Rebecca Chop, And she did a great favor to me very early on. Uh, and she just stepped down from being the president of University of Denver, I think about a year, year and a half ago. Um, she told me, she said, what took you six minutes in the consulting world will take you six days. What took you six days will take you six weeks. And what took you six weeks, I have no idea how long it will take in this environment. And, and she, you know, it wasn't, very, you know, it wasn't specific to that. Her point to me was you have to understand how different the environment is that you're in. And I think what's interesting and I'm proposing to you today is I think the outside world is going to force us to, instead of us trying to acclimate them to us, we're going to have to acclimate mm. to them. Yeah. Can I ask when you were at Emory, did you cross paths with, with Jane DeFalco Parker? I sure did. She's actually one of the people I still touch base with. She's retired. She did a great job leading Auburn through their big campaign and she's loving living down there in retirement. Um, But yeah, she and I have talked frequently. In fact, she was somebody I really truly reconnected in a serious way with over COVID because I had a little more time on my hands since I wasn't on trains, planes and automobiles as much. And I uh, had a chance to really kind of tap her brain about, you know, how to deal with, you know, key management, leadership and donor issues in a time of challenge like that. She was a great resource. Yeah, I, I got to know Jane during her time at Auburn, and then she mm-hmm. stayed engaged with um, AGB, the Association oh, okay. of Governing Boards. And so we got to connect um, in January at one of our kind of first in-person conferences in, mm-hmm. in a couple of years. So figured that you all um, knew each other. And so... Uh, at Vanderbilt, it, actually, I do want to just ask one question because sure. we, we do send podcast questionnaires and we try not to just read the questions, but you referenced something that stood out to me as being on one hand, like so simple, yet so profound and hard to consistently execute. And it was a story that you shared about your first scholarship gift and mm-hmm. having the opportunity to not just raise scholarship money, but it sounds like really keep the donor and student connected mm-hmm. and then yourself stay connected to the student to actually witness them go on to become a donor after they graduated. And I just feel like that should be very, very common, but it doesn't feel like it's all that common right. to really be able to close the loop um, in such a direct way. Yeah. Um, it, it, so you, you did, I think the question asked, you know, what is a special gift that stands out in your mind? And it was uh, probably the scholarship gifts in particular that I raised at Vanderbilt. We had a thing called Opportunity Vanderbilt. It was about eliminating student loans and debts from any part of the equation of them attending. And I had the good fortune to have a donor at the time who was based out of uh, London. And she made a very, she and her husband made a very specific gift. And Uh, for scholarship. And I got to watch them interact over a four or five year period of time with their first scholarship recipient. And I'm an unusual bird. I stayed at Vanderbilt 16 years. A lot of people move from university every 18 to, you know, three, four years to get more experience. I was there for a full 16. And this kind of happened at the beginning of my tenure there. Well, the young woman that was her scholarship recipient graduated and I got to see her go on and become 
a teacher and start pursuing her master's degree. And I, and obviously, I mean, her giving did not rise, you know, immediately in any way to the level that her donors had that supported her. But the fact that, you know, she left there and, and without us even needing to prompt her said, I'm going to start trying to find a way to pay this back to make sure I do some small touch to let someone else have the same opportunity I did, you know, and she started making small annual gifts. And I think that's the, you know, that's kind of the, the secret sauce, so to speak, of what we're trying to yeah. do, right? You know, I mean, we yeah. all talk about, you know, data analytics and acquisition. I mean, and there's all the stuff that drives, mm-hmm. you know, uh, participation out there, but really capturing her imagination while she was on campus, getting her to have a relationship with her donor, making her understand just how critical that was to her own experience. She left there already saying, I will do something. I will do something to the best of my ability. You won't even have to ask, you know, that's when you're doing it really well. So it was, it was remarkable to see her succeed and then to see her turn around and want to, you know, foster that same opportunity for somebody else. Well, and I think to me, it it just makes me think about the difference between, you know, your gift supports students like Jen Mm -hmm. who dream of doing things like this. Right. And your gift will support Jen. And she grew up in Atlanta and here's who she is. Mm -hmm. And this is what she's dreaming to accomplish. And it's like, you know, the closer you get to the center of the bullseye, of real human to human connection, I feel as a donor, but as we think about this sector, the odds go up that people are gonna stretch. And I feel like it's just that, it's like support our mission to support students like Jen to, this is Jen. Mm -hmm. And like the closer you can get to that, the better. And at the same time, I feel like we're just not there yet. I mean, one of my dreams as we have come together with thank you has been like, what is the donor to student connection at scale Mm -hmm. that maybe is never going to be quite as personal as it sounds like you were able to architect with this, this group in London and and the Mm -hmm. student, but, but, you know, we've done a lot of work thus far to sort of say, Hey, student send personal thank you to Brent, you know, to show appreciation. Right. What about like, Hey, Brent, send a thank you to Jen and let her know as a donor why you support her. And it's like, how do we get a little bit more of that, not just student impact story, but the why behind the donor and get those kind of good vibes flowing back and forth. I just feel like there's so much potential to, um, to just drive even more consistent support if you can bring that kind of personal connection. Yeah, no, it, anything you can do. And I do think thank you, and some of the other technologies we have been able to use. Um, you know, Zoom was, you know, obviously it has its limitations, but I will say that one of the most effective things that we did during the kind of COVID period of time that we can't do in the normal setting of, of a, an academic year, we were able to hold really small group interactions where we had two or three students who were direct, you know, who were donor uh, supported students mm-hmm. that are, you know, in, you're here studying different things. And then to bring five prospects into that small setting to have them just have a very personal interaction. And they, they, this is not the student they're yet supporting, but to your point, they got to know Sam, you know, Susie and John 
very intimately over about a 45, 50 minute period of time on, you know, on Zoom, they got to share their own story of, oh, you know, well, when I was a you know, student at UD 20 years ago here. So all of a sudden, so everything cool. you wanted to have happen happened, right? In yeah. the sense that, yeah. you know, the donor, the prospect got to understand how dynamic the student is today. Also got to hear firsthand some of the challenges that they face because they are different than when they were here 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, the student now knows what it means potentially to be a donor and an engaged alum and, and, and oh, well, this guy runs this company or he founded that particular you know, uh, product. You, you get my point. It, it was a great exercise. I can't load those three students up and take them to the seven different alumni you know, kind of heavy markets for us, right? You know, in the middle of the school year, but they can give me 45 minutes in an, on an afternoon or early evening to engage directly with those folks. And it was pretty remarkable how many people we were able to put in those kinds of settings who came away and said, I want to help. Not only do I want to make a gift, but I want to make sure that I'm connected with the career center to, you know, my company has internships, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think you're right. There's that the more personal we can make it, the more one to one in terms of someone really understanding that individual student story. And in this case, also that donor story, because the students were curious, who are you and why would you do this? This is cool, but why would you, you know, one of them asked, you know, why do you give money away? It's it's so hard to earn it. Why would you ever give it away? And I thought that was, it was a brilliant question. I mean, and, you know, I think that goes to also just not over scripting the interactions that our donors have, you know, with our, students and with our campus partners, because I think sometimes, too, we also try to control that environment or script it so tightly. And some of that magic doesn't happen when you overthink it that way. I think that's really well said. And I hope those are the kinds of experiences that as we do get pulled back into reunion planning or the event circuit, that we land in a balanced hybrid approach because we've been given a gift of a once in a generation adoption of technology like Zoom. If you had mm-hmm. tried to do that same event three years ago, the donors would have said, wait, what? I don't even know. I've got to download this thing. What, what is that? And so I, I do feel like we've, we've got um, to get back on the road, but to not forget how much we've learned about those scalable hybrid interactions that just never were possible um, before. Um, and so tell me just about the ultimate decision to accept the leadership opportunity to pursue it and accept it at the University of Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, very different place than the Southeast for sure. And, uh, you know, the accent's very different in Dayton, uh, given my travels uh, in the region. And so, um, but, but at the same time, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's commonalities just around the overall, you know, mission and, and impact and the importance of institutions like the University of Dayton, um, you, know, you know, in, in your region and um, in similar contexts throughout the country. So what, what inspired you? Yeah, um, you know, it was probably the, I mean, obviously the opportunity to lead your own team. I mean, I think when you've been in a, in a position like I've been at Vanderbilt for quite some time, been through, you know, a, a very extensive campaign and then was setting up for the next, you know, I, I think there was the challenge of, okay, I have had the good fortune to serve under four or five different chancellors and presidents, several different VPs, 
you know, um, I kind of feel like I know what works. I know what maybe doesn't work and how my leadership style would be. And really unique opportunity presented itself. Um, was not looking to, to really be a number one in this kind of setting. Um, but, you know, professional networks are some ways that some of the best jobs come to you. And I had a great friend at Syracuse University um, who had been in fundraising and she and I had known each other for about 15 years. And to tell you how small the world was, she had a new president at Syracuse, Kent Severud, who was the law school dean at Vanderbilt previously. And she wanted to understand a little bit about how Kent worked. And so she called me up to get some advice on that. And as good friends would do, she said, well, you know, I challenge you, what are you going to do next? Are you going to do, keep doing the same thing or, you know, kind of just stay there the rest of your career? And I said, you know, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. And she said, well, our pro former provost just became president at the University of Dayton and he's looking for someone to lead his advancement. And she said, I feel like I know your work style, the way you think. I know his personality and his values. I think the two of you would really, really connect well. Um, and it's so much to say that it's history. So, you know, when the president of Dayton says, people say, well, why did you come to Dayton? He always says, oh, she came for me. You know, actually, he's partly right. Um, I came because it was a great institution. It's got a good research base. Um, I love the rah-rah. So the fact that the Flyers are a great basketball team helps, um, you know, but it was a place of mission. It was a it was a place really focused on the whole person and the idea that, um, you know, they, they can um, ed- get educated in terms of a vocation, not just a career. You know, that was appealing to me as well. And like I said, it, it was really kind of, you know, an opportunity to work with a first time president who was trying to set a very different leadership tone. And I'll tell you the, the kind of the hook. It was the initial conversation that he and I had on the phone. And the first question that he asked me was not about the biggest gift that I had ever closed or the most prickly donor relations issue I had ever handled. You know, nothing about that. Right. You know, it was if I give you this opportunity to lead a team, how will you start to set your leadership tone and your expectations of one another from day one? And I thought, okay, I'm listening. Because his assumption is I can do all of the tactical stuff. I can do that part of the job. He is most interested in bringing people around him that have similar core values um, that put people first, you know, um, you know, that have high levels of accountability and connection with the work that they do. Um, and I thought, okay, that really appeals to me. And I knew why it appealed to me because I'd been in institutions where that had existed. And here was a chance to be the leader or the designer of the roadmap in that setting versus the one that kind of executed it or traveled it, if that makes sense to you. And so that was probably the biggest part of it was, okay, this is a place in which my leadership style will be valued. You know, and I thought that 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 meant enough to me at that point in my career. I feel like the two words that have come up so much recently um, are trust and accountability, Um, Mm -hmm. because, again, yeah, strategy, tactics, the plan, all of that only matters if you've got a leadership team and a team more broadly that trusts each other, but also Mm -hmm. has a high standard for accountability. And so um, would love to just know more about your perspective on that and if there are things you've done or experienced that have worked well to foster trust and accountability, or if there are lessons learned um, where things haven't gone as well. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, it's this kind of this balance right now, in particular, when you think about everything that the workforce went through over the last period of time, advancement and otherwise, you've got got this 
need for, you know, accountability and focus. And like you say, kind of, um, you know, kind of, I would call the hard side of the business. I mean, because in the end, you have to have productivity and results, right? And I think, and then on the other side, you know, there's this real need for trust and empathy and communication, uh, almost more so than ever before. And so how do you find the right balance in those, you know, where, you're not so tough that you're not hearing people, right? You know, but that you're not spending so much time, you know, um, worrying, you know, about the the empathetic side, you know, that that nothing gets done. And so it is, right. it, it's an interesting balance. Um, for me, really, um, I would say transparency has been the biggest thing. So um, I came into a setting here where there had been a lot of change. I was the fourth person to be VP in under twelve years. And so a lot of my long-term employees of which at the time we had 68 folks, I'd say two thirds of them had five to eight years tenure or better. I mean, I had a lot of people that were 15 plus years and, you know, if you think about putting yourself in that situation, you've had four different people tell you what success looks like Four different people tell you what metrics are going to be evaluate it. You know, you get my point. And I thought, you know, the key thing I need to do is to be really clear up front about what are we going to say is success? How are we going to be consistent about how we measure that together? Um, when we run into challenges, you know, um, can I get to a point where you'll really believe me when I say, if I know the answer and I can tell you, I will. If I don't know the answer, I'll go find the answer. And if I know the answer and I can't tell you in this moment, I'll be direct with you that that's actually the case. And I will come back to you when I can. And I, and I think it was kind of that transparent way of saying, you know, we're going to have to do things radically different. We're going to have to hold each other accountable. We're going to have to have certain expectations about our behavior, right? You know, you can't be a major gift officer and raise $25 million and make 10 other employees world havoc for a year and still be rated exceptionally. It's great that you brought in that money, but if, you know, but if you made everybody else miserable and didn't follow the, the guidelines, you know, that's a problem, you know? So it was really kind of trying to navigate that space because, you know, I came into that situation where it was like, I don't know if I can trust what I'm hearing because there's been so many of you in such a small amount of time. And I don't think that is unique to the shop. I mean, if you think about how transitory leadership is in even these senior positions, right? Um, it really is hard to be a effective team member in some of these settings because it does feel like the goalpost is always getting moved or the field is getting redefined, you know, to put it in sports terms. Um, so that was kind of, for me, it was like, no, you know, the changes we make when we make them, we will make them because they're going to be part of our structure from now going forward. We might modify them slightly, and I, but we're not going to do change for just change sake. And I think that was having that clarity from day one and then just constantly communicating. Sometimes I feel like I've said the same thing like 20 times and I probably have, but that's, what's been more effective, at least in this setting. No, I think that's really well said. It's um, it is a, it is a struggle. And, and I think, I mean, look, we just, we just merged Evertrue and thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Very similar missions, like serving the same markets, like, have known each other for many years um, on the conference circuit. And, and, mm -hmm. and um, it's been an incredible uh, decision without a doubt, but it would almost be like if 
you know, one day you said, you know, hey, great news team, like we decided that our missions are similar enough and together we can do more. And so we're going to bring together, you know, University of Dayton and the University of Cincinnati and work together. And it's like, what? Like that is the, you know, on one hand, you could sort of see it on paper, like right. similar region, you know, lots of commonalities, lots of shared DNA, hmm. but then to actually do something like that and then build, you know, trust and accountability in a fully remote context. Um, it's, it's hard and, um, but it is absolutely worth the challenge. And I think just like, uh, you know, you're, you're experiencing at Dayton as you all kind of go through that, um, you've gone through that journey now. And my understanding is results are being generated and that there is momentum in spite of the challenges. Um, it's just really kind of inspiring to see that, you know, that, that it pays off. And, and I hope your team is feeling that um, as well. And, and maybe as we start to, to close here, you could just share a little bit about the momentum you have here in 2022. You had your reunion weekend last weekend. I mean, what was, what was that like? How, how are you feeling? And for our audience's sake, it is June 17th. So uh, we're just coming up on the end here of the, the yeah. fiscal year. Yeah. So um, in a six week period of time, we did giving day, senior toast, commencement for the class of 2022, our board of trustees meeting, graduation celebration for 2020, and then we did our first in-person reunion in three years. Uh, we had about 2,200 people on campus. So to tell you that my staff is, that was, and that, so that kind of ended the six week period of craziness, I guess is my point of last weekend. Uh, to say that my staff on this Friday, four days, five days later, is taking a deep breath would be correct. We are still, you know, looking at the end of the fiscal year, but no, we we really have. I mean, it's been energizing to get people back, um, to see them reconnect with each other. Uh, you know, it was amazing last Saturday. It was pouring rain like monsoon all, but we're under a tent with two thousand people and a band playing and lights, and you know, you could just see how appreciative they were of being back in a place that they love and to be with people that they really care about, you know, and, and for our staff to know that they were a part of executing it, it was, it was a huge win for a team that was remote for almost two years, you know, um, in, uh, you know, as you said before, the other thing that has been really great is despite all the challenges of fiscal year 21, the stuff that we had built in 17, 18, 19, and even early 20, I mean, let's, let's not forget that, you know, Things were flying pretty high around here in 2020. We had just one game day with Obi Toppin as our basketball player, and you know, at ESPN on our campus. And seven days later, we were shut down, you know, from COVID. So we really went through a drastic kind of you know moment where we really had momentum with us, and we've doubled the new commitments. We brought in over a thousand new volunteers uh, to help. In fact, our giving day this uh, that I talked about starting that six week period of action. And we had over 800 individuals, not staff, 800 volunteers that worked on behalf of our giving day, you know, reaching out to their peers and so forth. We've really been able to kind of turn that whole conversation around, you know, about what it means to be philanthropic, what it means to be engaged, what it means to participate. Um, so I'm really proud of our team and the fact that they've shown this resiliency and we're about to close out a record year. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a lot of reward. We had a great time earlier this week uh, on Tuesday morning, just a quick stand-up meeting. You were talking about what is effective. 
you know, I just basically invited everybody to a quick stand-up meeting to celebrate, you know, the fact that we had really gotten through this period of time and to allow them to, to shout out and recognize each other. Because I think that's the thing. Sometimes we think leadership is the only people that can do that. And, and in fact, you know, they really appreciate the fact that their peers understood the effort that they had put in and, and how hard it was to get back into that, that mindset and, and to be successful. So um, it's been a, it's been a good run here. It's been a good run here. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, you hadn't been during that, that real lockdown period on planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, but it sounds like now you're on planes, trains, automobiles, and boats. Is that and boats, yes. So I have a late weekend. You you listen well, and I, we have uh, our one of our campaign leaders is holding a uh, UD uh, kind of we call it a flyer porch party because we have porches on our houses that the students live here uh, around a lake in Indiana for us. So we have about fifteen couples that own homes around this particular lake, and we're going to get together and. Uh, kind of be a big flyer family tomorrow. And uh, then on Sunday, there's a boat race, uh, which I have no idea what that entails. As long as I don't have to um, drive the boat or swim in the lake, we're good. If, if all I have to do is ride or cheer, I'm good, Brent. I cannot even imagine what a uh, alumni boat race um, would would entail, but I, I I have no doubt there will be video, uh, so I, I look forward I, to learning video more. Video pictures for sure. So, so and and my understanding is, um, you know, for all of the advances in technology that we've witnessed, building the list for this event was uh, somewhat old school in nature. So, yeah. your your trustee essentially, or uh, your was was driving around looking for University of Dayton flags and yes. then taking down yeah. names. So she she was curious because um, she knew that there she was aware and was good friends with a couple of fellow flyers who've graduated that have homes on the lake. And she noticed as she would take her boat around on different weekends that, you know, everyone has a flagpole, has the American flag. And then for, you know, for the most intense purposes, this has a flag for either a college team or, you know, a pro team or what have you uh, out as well or on the back of their boat, those little flags on the backs of the boats and so forth. And she noticed that there were a lot more Dayton Flyer fan, uh, flags out than she had, you know, knew was around her. So she went around and actually took down the house numbers of individuals that she saw with Flyer gear and anything on their homes or their boats or what have you and said, hey, let's see who these people are. So um, it will be really interesting. I wonder what, you know, when we get there and we actually start talking as a group and celebrating and having fun, I have a feeling that a thread of this story will come out. So uh, I'm not quite sure how people will feel about the idea that she was driving around on Sunday afternoons, trying to figure out who was who, but uh, you know, however you get at it, you know, in the end, um, most of the time flyers love other flyers. So I don't think it's going to be a problem, but it was definitely old school. Not, uh, nothing I mean, like uh, cleaning your database up that way. I've heard of door to door uh, fundraising, but you know, boat to boat is next level. So I hope that it, uh, it goes really, really well. And um, thank you so much for your time, Jen. I got to give you an opportunity. Are you hiring? And, um, and if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? I know you've got an active LinkedIn profile, um, any other recommended, uh, ways to reach out. Yeah, no, I would definitely say, Brent, we would love to hear from folks if they'd like to be part of the flyer team. Um, we've got a lot, number of different positions that are open right now. Um, probably the ones that I'm most excited about 
are in our leadership annual giving team. Uh, this is a remarkable group of professionals um, that have just raised the bar. I mean, in terms of what they're doing and the pipeline they're building and the new people they've brought into conversations, um, they've exceeded their goals now four out of the last five years um, and um, are just you know fearless about how they go about their work. So if you like representing uh, a really energetic campus, you know, um, and you like being on the road and, and uh, being out in front of people, this is this is kind of a, a group of folks that are just really making a huge difference. So love for them to reach out, reach out through LinkedIn profile. Um, and then Jennifer Foster, Jen Foster, she's also on LinkedIn. She's actually the head of that team. So I know she would welcome um, seeing um, any kind of interest on that. But that's that's the most exciting thing we have out there right now. Love it. Love it. Well, I'd encourage everybody to reach out to Jen, mention that you uh, uh, heard her on the Race podcast. And I look forward to continue to learn more about you and your team and your work and hopefully seeing videos of this uh, this boat race. And, um, uh, and, and so with that, Jen, I'll just say thank you for your time and uh, congrats on the momentum and successes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brent. It was a great time to talk. All right, with that, Brent signing off uh, with today's guest, Jen Howe from the University of Dayton. Take care, everybody.